0: 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Pastor Joe is in 1 Peter, and we just started there, and we were looking at our uh, living hope that we have in Jesus Christ, so I'm going to pick up that theme a little bit, um, not from Peter, but here Paul speaking to Timothy, beginning in verse 8, says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here... Uh, Paul is speaking to Timothy, obviously about their theme, that Paul is both a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles about these things. And one of the things he makes clear here is that God had a purpose for us before time began related to life and immortality that we did not know about. And what he says is when Jesus came and he abolished death, not only does that offer us hope in the gospel, but in his death and resurrection, we see something of God's purpose in terms of our life and immortality. And uh, obviously, we, we never want to get away from the cross or the centrality of the cross and forgiveness there. But we can't forget that we have a risen Savior either. And that we see in that risen Savior what Christ is getting us to, where he's bringing us, and what God's intention for us is. Uh, Life and immortality, the idea of life beyond the grave, is still big business today. If you write a book about some after-death experience, uh, people buy those things and eat those things up. Many of them are debunked uh, soon after. A lot of things in there are very unbiblical. But what Paul is saying is if you want if you want some light on what God wants eternal life to really look like you need to look at Jesus. The gospel has shown us something that wasn't before revealed. In the Old Testament, the Jews believed something about life, eternal life. They believed that there was a place of eternal life and that there was reward there. They believed there was a place of eternal death and some type of judgment there. But a lot outside of that wasn't systematized. What what life after death was like, it was shadowy. It was covered. They weren't really sure what would happen there. They didn't have the promises of a father's house, house that we have. They didn't have the direct revelation of a new heavens and a new earth. They didn't have the things that the New Testament gives us. So their ideas there were still being formed. And what Paul says is Jesus Christ, our Savior, having abolished or defeated or made null death, has also brought to light what God's intentions are in life and immortality. Jesus becomes the original of what you and I will all become to a lesser degree. He is, as the Bible said, the chiefest of ten thousands and altogether lovely. First Corinthians, Paul would say, speaking of the resurrection, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Paul says, Christ became the first fruits of what would come after him. In the Old Testament, you would bring the first fruits of your harvest, your grain or whatever, and the best of that, you would wave before the Lord. And it was a picture of, we're offering you this, but there's still a whole lot coming behind in this harvest. And what Paul picks up is, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven, he became the first fruits of a whole bunch of what was going to be like him yet coming into the presence of God, resurrected men and women with the life and immortality that only he can give. So the Bible does more than just tell us about resurrection or proclaim resurrection. It literally shows us what resurrection and immortality looks like in the risen Jesus Christ. There's a revelation there of something. So what I want to do is, if you would now, Flip to Luke chapter 24 with me. And I want to look at Jesus in his resurrection in Luke 24 and just pick out a couple things that the Holy Spirit shows us in Jesus Christ that we can take and learn from in terms of life and immortality. Uh, Obviously, what I'm going to share is not exhaustive. There's not enough time to do that. Uh, I'm just going to share a couple particular things. In Luke 24... Jesus is risen from the dead here. He has appeared to some of the disciples, particularly the two men on the road to Emmaus. He reveals himself to them. He disappears. They run all the way back to where they came from and meet with the other disciples and tell them that they had seen Jesus Christ. So we'll pick up in verse 36. It says this, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself, stood in the midst of them and said to them peace to you but they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit and he said to them why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have and when he had said this he showed them his hands and his feet but while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. So the first thing we see here about the resurrection, I, I think is the thing we, we might know the most, but we see Jesus resurrected in his literal body. It's not someone else's body. He didn't have his old body decay and disappear and a new body made out of nowhere and given to him. It was his body resurrected. He says, behold, my hands and my feet. They were his hands and his feet, not somebody else's hands and feet. They were his hands and his feet. And when they look at him, they're shocked because he looks exactly like the Jesus they had known. So they don't know how to rationalize that in their minds. So they think he's a ghost, a spirit. And Jesus wants to immediately attack that idea and say, I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. Look at me, my hands, my feet. Touch me, see. I'm flesh and bone. Something they understood or were familiar with, although in a new way. And he he said, give me something to eat. He eats the fish. He eats the honeycomb. It doesn't fall right through him. He doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't like, you know, turn into something new. He, he has a literal frame that they're familiar with. Jesus would say this in John chapter 2. In speaking, Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. They begin to remember at that moment, he told us he was going to raise up his body. Luke tells us that when they went into the grave or the tomb where the stone was rolled away, they did not find the body of Jesus. They didn't find his body. It didn't totally decay. It had only been there three days because it was up. It was there, his still literal body. And the reason I think it's important, again, for us is, there are plenty of weird thoughts out there about what happens after a person's death, particularly believer's death, that we have some type of weird disembodied experience or we're immaterial or ghostly or we turn into other things like angels or we sprout wings. None of that's going to happen. You, when you're resurrected, are going to have your body resurrected. Your hands your feet. Philippians tells us our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he's even able to subdue all things to himself. Now, how exactly this works out, what it looks like in the moment, we don't know. Sometimes we're afraid because we can't imagine it. Or maybe we think we don't have faith in it because we can't imagine it. Imagination and faith are two different things. And it's hard to picture a moment of resurrection. Uh, Death seems so final. And most of us are familiar with seeing a human body die and a human body decay. But we are not familiar with seeing a resurrected human being. And God, in his wisdom, decided to keep that locked away in the tomb. How Jesus rose, we're not sure. But Paul says he does it according to the working whereby he's able to subdue all things to himself. We we might not see the moment, but you see the Jesus afterwards. The tomb is empty, the body is gone, and the body is living in front of them. It can be touched, it can be felt, it can be handled. The he it's still doing human things, like like eating. Jesus eating broiled fish is important for me because it's the one verse that I can think, maybe I'll still get to eat meat in heaven. He was perfect and he ate broiled fish, it didn't defile him. So maybe maybe we'll still be able to meet eat meat in heaven. His body was still his. He was still a man. He still looked like Jesus. He was still a Jewish man. God has a purpose for our bodies. He will be glorified in your literal body and its resurrection. Every kindred, tongue, people, and nation will be represented. The color, black, white, brown, doesn't matter. Your person, who you are, black hair, blonde hair, red hair, there's, there's a purpose in your body that is glorifying to him. And when they're all risen like Christ's, the first fruits is there. And when the rest of them show up around his throne, there's great glory given to God Almighty. The pioneer bishop of New Zealand was a guy named George Augustus Selwyn. And There was a mission agency he was a part of that was basically trying to map out the whole world and make sure they sent missionaries everywhere. And they were doing it by longitude and latitude. And he was a very ambitious man, very gifted, wanted to preach the gospel. And they were supposed to just give him New Zealand, but he noticed there was a clerical error when they were mapping out his location. And they added a whole bunch of other islands there. They made the wrong marks of the latitude and longitude. And he didn't say anything because he was like, great, I've got other places I go preach the gospel. So he didn't make a comment. Well, when he got to New Zealand, he realized, okay, this is bigger than I thought. I'll never be able in a lifetime to evangelize here in these other places. So what do I do? They had a Christian college there. So his plan was he would sail to these islands, many of them cannibalistic, dangerous. Most of them had never heard anything or seen a white person or heard anything about the gospel. And he would go to these islands and convince them, if they would, to give one of their young men to him, and he would take him back to the Christian college, educate him, and also evangelize him so he'd be saved, and then send him back as a first missionary to his own people, because he knew he didn't have the time to learn all their languages or customs and things. So in his first trip, he ended up with five boys coming back with him, one of them being a young man named Saipo, and He was one of his most gifted pupils there. He was saved. They sent him back to his own people. And not too long later, he received the letter. And when he opened up that letter, it was a letter informing him that Saipo had gone back and been martyred uh, for his belief in Jesus Christ, sent back to his own people. Now, obviously, he was breaking down. He was distraught about that, weeping. He loved this young man. And he was walking with one of his friends, a man named George Gray, while he was there. And he passed a letter to him as well. And he noticed that George Gray wasn't quite as moved. And he said, you knew this young man. How come you're not crying as well? Like you were one of his teachers. Why, why hasn't this affected you? Uh, here's what George Gray said. I thought this is a wonderful comment. He said, I've been so wrapped in the thought that I could not weep. I've been thinking of the prophecy that men of every nation and kindred and people and tongue were to me in the kingdom of heaven. And I have tried to imagine the joy and wonder prevailing at the coming of Saipo, the first Christian of his race. He would be glad evidence that another people of the world had been added to the teaching of Christ. The resurrection of our bodies as they are is a central belief in what life and immortality is going to be like. And it does have direct implications to practical things in our world, whether it's in our relation to thinking about what eternity will be like, to racism issues, to the reality of our hopes as as these bodies begin to break down and no longer are what they could be. In so many different ways, it's important for us to see That Jesus, who brought life and immortality to light through his own gospel, said, This is my flesh and bone. These are my hands. These are my feet. He was risen in his own body. And you and I are going to be made like him. That's why the angels said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. You're going to be alive. Alive in your body, when your body dies, this physical body, this tent that you have now, you will still be living just like Jesus died and was risen. The Christian hope is eternal life after death. Life in a human body, the body you had here. When everything else passes away, I will still be alive as C.S. Lewis said, alive to remember the galaxies as an old tale that was told. This is our hope revealed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what life and immortality is going to be like. It's not some weird thing, some, some strange existence that you don't know anything about. You're going to have your flesh and your bone. No blood, flesh and bone. Upgraded version there. Not only that, you'll notice... As Jesus is there, not only does he have the same body, but it says again in 36, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. This might seem uh, like a simple point, but I'm going to combine it, and I think it's important. Jesus was still Jesus. He literally even has the same name. The body has the same name. Uh, The Bible says God might change some of our names or give us a new name in terms of reward and promises, and that's fine. If Jesus gives us a new name, we're going to like it. Nobody's going to get a new name for Jesus and not like their new name. So that's cool. But most of what we see in the Bible is you, you are going to be you still. You're, Jesus was still Jesus. When Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and pointing out that God is not the God of the dead but of the living, he said, am I not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Abraham was still Abraham, Isaac was still Isaac, Jacob was still Jacob. He said, people are going to come from all over, the east and the west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham in Abraham's bosom was still Abraham. Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration were still Moses and Elijah. Jesus' friend Lazarus, who was the brother of Mary and Martha, was still Lazarus. And when he was dead and he was calling him out of the tomb, he called Lazarus. Lazarus, that was the poor man who died and went to Abraham's bosom, was still Lazarus. David, who the Bible says is going to be resurrected in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, is still King David. The disciples, when they see John in his revelation, sees the new heavens and the new earth on the new Jerusalem. He said, I saw the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. John was still John. James was still James. The names written above the gates of the new Jerusalem of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah was still Judah. He recognized them. Simeon, Issachar. Their names are still the same. Jesus makes the point here. Look at what he says as it goes down a little bit in verse 39. Behold, my hands and my feet. It is I myself. The point is he was still who he was. The name still fit. Jesus. He hadn't, he hadn't changed into something totally new. And if there was a time that it would happen, this, this is where it would happen. Sometimes I think after resurrection or life after death, we think like somehow everything totally changes or who we are totally changes. But the Christian message is, no, no, no. Actually, we stay very much the same. Jesus was still Jesus. Here he is now, the conqueror of death, resurrected before them. If there was a time where he was too important to hang out with them, it would have been now. If there was a time where he would have had too much to do than to interact with them, it would have been now. He's standing in front of them soon to say, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. And here they are, still a fearful, doubting, hiding band of common people, closed up in an upper room. And if there was a time where their bond would be broken, where that relationship would fundamentally change, this is the time that it would fundamentally change. And what Jesus does is he shows up and he says, you're still the same person, I'm still the same person. It's I myself. It's me, Jesus. He, he's still the same person. What, what he does is he shows up, he appears to them, He reproves their little faith. He teaches them the word. He patiently travels with them and accepts their hospitality. He reminds them of what he saw in the past. He calms their fears. He addresses their doubts. He stirs their joy. He repeats his call to follow him. He commands them to go and share him. He promises his presence. He was still, even though resurrected, the same person they had come to know before his death and resurrection. He was still the same Jesus. Remarkable in so many ways. And I think it's important that we recognize if Jesus is still the same Jesus, you and I are still going to be the same people. We're going to have the same personalities. We've been created in his image and likeness, and there's something in you that reflects him. And you're going to carry that into eternity. That personality is expressed through our bodies, The message will be the same, save purified. Jesus didn't need to morally be purified because he was Jesus. You and I, all the bad things about us that would hinder what God really made us to be will be gone, our pride, our insecurity, the things that actually mask the true personality that God has given us. All of that will be gone. But you will still be you. Same software, new hardware, right? You'll be purified in an upgraded body. In fact, you're going to be more who you actually are than you ever were. But still you, not somebody new, not something totally changed. And the Jesus that you've come to know in this world here is the same Jesus you're going to know there. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think that's important to recognize because what it tells us is if we have the same bodies, again, it tells us something about immortality, about life and immortality and what God intends for us. If we have the same bodies, same names, same personalities, if I'm still me and you're still you, and Jesus is still Jesus, then our relationships continue, right? Then you're able to recognize your loved ones in heaven. There's not a single passage in the Bible that suggests the dissolution of our earthly relationships. God told Moses, I love the phrase, you're going to be gathered unto your people as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered unto his people. You know what death is going to be for you, Moses? You're going to get gathered to where your brother Aaron is, where your sister Miriam is, all those people that you walked with in the wilderness that passed away. You're going to be gathered to them. That's what it looks like. And what resurrection does, the resurrection in the Bible, the the Christian hope, is it infuses an incredible value into all of our present relationships, short or long. What it means is every relationship we have here as believers is simply the beginning of something that's eternal. And it should actually matter. Whether I hang out with another believer on a bus trip somewhere or on an airplane and we're just together for three hours, that's three hours plus eternity. And I hope when I see that person again in eternity, it was a good three hours. If it was just a negative three hours, that's not very positive. What about if you're going to be with them in work for a couple years or in a college dorm for a semester or four years? What if you're going to be with this other believer in a family? years. What it means is the relationships we have here are a head start on eternity. And it gives them incredible value because there's a select few people you get to have that with. I'm going to know Moses for all eternity. I'm going to know my wife and my dad and my family and my friends for eternity plus. I get to know Jesus for eternity plus. The world's relationships begin here and end here. The Christian relationship simply a start. Simply a start. I'm still me. You're still you. We're going to meet again in eternity, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. That's what we believe about our loved ones. That's the hope that Jesus gives us, that we're going to be gathered to our people. And it's also important to recognize that the same thing happens in my relationship with Jesus, just like it did for them, just like... If I pass away, when I meet my family and my loved ones again, I expect to pick up right where we left off. When Jesus died and he resurrected and he showed back up again, you know what he did with Peter? He picked up right where they left off. And that whole denial thing, they had a conversation with that about that. <clears throat> right where they left off. What about Thomas? Thomas, I heard that you were doubting. Why don't you put your fingers in the nail marks, right, right where they left off? Sometimes we think we're going to die and enter into heaven and like magically have this brand new thing with Jesus. No, no, no. You're going to meet the Jesus you have a relationship with now. Some of us might have to have a conversation entering into eternity. Your relationship with Jesus now matters very much. That's the Jesus you're going to meet in heaven. Don't blow it off. Don't ignore it and try to think like, ah, you know, well something magically is going to happen that's different. No, you know, you're going to enter into heaven. You're going to have a conversation with Jesus. You, you should listen to him now if he's speaking to you, if he's talking to you about something, because he's still him and you're still you. And that's where you're picking up in life and immortality. And it's important to recognize that. It's also important to recognize that the true understanding of this resurrection brought incredible joy to these people. Look again at verse 41. Uh, Once they no longer believe he's a ghost, it says, But while they still did not believe for joy, they marveled. At first, it it was like, I can't rationalize how this is happening. This is beyond our understanding. Then when they recognize he really is there, flesh and bone in front of us, the Jesus that we knew and loved, they're so happy they could barely believe it. This is, this is so much better than I thought. It is beyond our comprehension, which God is certainly able to do. Not only that, you look at the end when he ascends. If you look at verses 52 and 53 there of Luke 24... Luke ends it by saying, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. This reality of Christ's resurrection drove these New Testament saints into the book of Acts and all throughout the earth. They had touched him. They had handled him. They saw him with their eyes. They knew he was flesh and bone. They watched him eat. They conversed with him for 40 days. They knew he was the same wonderful Jesus that had caused them to drop their nets and follow him. And in fact, they had more joy after he ascended than when he had first called them on that day. There was something remarkable about the reality of his resurrection. And they carried that joy despite difficulty and hardship and suffering that they faced in their witness of him. Again, Acts 13.52 says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Paul wrote to the Romans and said, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians six, Paul said, You became followers of us in the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And Peter 1.8, where we will be, said, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The reality of this resurrection is what these early saints believed and brought them joy. Incredible joy, despite hardships and difficulties. They knew the resurrection was so real, they surrendered to martyrdom by the thousands. Why would they fear the threats of their persecutors? What earthly kingdom could command their allegiance over the inauguration of Christ's kingdom in the resurrection? If you kill me, I know exactly what I will be. I've seen it. I've touched it. I've held on to it. To live is Christ. To die is gain. They knew the touch, the smell, the feel of the resurrection. They had handled the kingdom of God. They knew what life and immortality was like. That's why Paul would say, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Athanasius, speaking about uh, the incarnation and also the resurrection, gave this proof of it. He said, there's proof of this too for men who, before they believe in Christ, think death is horrible and are afraid of it. Once they're converted, despise it so completely that they go eagerly to meet it and they themselves become witnesses of the Savior's resurrection. He would say, even women and children... So embrace death because they're witnesses of the resurrection. They don't fear it anymore. Jesus had warned his disciples not to fear those who could only kill the body, but the one who could kill both body and soul in hell. I believe the fear these early disciples had was that their loved ones would miss out on the resurrection. That was the fear that they had that they wouldn't believe what they were witnessing of, the glory they had seen and experienced. They wanted the world to know their risen Savior and Lord. It was their message. It should be ours still, but it was the message that brought them great joy. Again, in Acts it said, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Again, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul, preaching. Some said of him, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of false gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. What this means is that this resurrection life shouldn't be something totally foreign to us. We know something about bodies We're just going to know something about a body that's immortal and powerful and heavenly. We know something about ourselves, but we're going to know something about ourselves with no more sin weighing us down. We know something about others, but we're going to know something about a perfect world, a perfect society, and a perfect king. None of those things seem too bad. And I think a lot of times we begin to think of resurrection or eternity or life and immortality, and we get scared of things because we have some strange ideas that everything is going to be beyond our comprehension or some of our teachers teach it that way. When Jesus shows up, he says, give me some fish and I'll eat it. Give me some honey and I'll eat it. Look at my hands and my feet. It's me. Let me me show you what life and immortality is going to be like. You understand something of it. And the parts that you don't understand are only better. The only differences are really good differences. They're not something to be afraid of. These people weren't afraid of the life and immortality that was brought to light through the gospel. It wasn't just living forever. Sometimes we think of that and we get scared. The eternal life that Jesus offers is much more than duration We believe everyone's going to live forever. Forever with Jesus Christ or forever separated from Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus teaches. Heaven and hell. Duration for everybody. But eternal life is quality. He brought that out in life and immortality. It's not just life that lasts forever. It's the type of life that you want to last forever. Really, it's the only thing that you could actually call life. That, Jesus says, more abundant. That's what I offer you. A life knowing him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Where do we find our joy? These early believers, they were, had so much joy in this, they, they couldn't even believe it, how remarkable it was. So much joy that they faced all types of difficulty and hardships and endured so many things to be witnesses of this remarkable thing. Where's our hope? Where do we find our joy? What are our joys linked to? All the material things of this world, the passing pleasures that are never going to make a difference. Only the pleasures of the human body, which will be changed. How many Christians lack true joy in the Holy Spirit because they're trying to take joy in things the Holy Spirit can never take joy in? They found incredible joy in their living hope in Jesus Christ. And the reality is, that's what his promise is to us. His promise is never that we have everything we want in this world. Some people preach that message. That's not what his promise is. Or that we'll have all the joys that we want while we're here. We are going to live and die in this world outside of his rapture, which would be great if we just had immediate change. But otherwise, these physical frames are going to go through difficulties and hardships. But for some reason they that didn't affect their joy. And they were willing to go through those things because what was beyond it was so worth it to them. And Jesus' answer of resurrection, the incredible truths that he brings out in the gospel about life and immortality should be powerful powerful in answering our problems we should bring our sorrows our problems our pains our difficulties our hurts our darkness and loneliness and line it up against the resurrection and see if there's not power and hope and life enough in it to conquer those things that's what happened here for them if the resurrection is fantasy then there's no hope for the world for anyone But since it's not, since Jesus is risen from the dead and he has shown us what God has intended in terms of life and immortality, you and I have great and living hope, the type of hope that should bolster our faith even in the midst of difficulties and hardships. John Calvin would say the divine power by which he maintains our faith is most conspicuous in his resurrection. Peter and those early saints found living hope and Peter says even those of you who have never seen him experienced joy inexpressible that didn't just happen on Easter it wasn't the only day the resurrection mattered for them every single day the resurrection mattered for them the power and the hope and the joy that it brought to them and it was also a part of their incredible purpose if you go just a little bit down to verse 44 in Luke 24 there. That risen Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, Here's why, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Christ commanded his followers, go share this message to lost people that they would repent and that their sins could be remitted, taken away, paid for, and that they could have then life in the name of Jesus Christ, eternal life. And how do you think those disciples went out and talked about Jesus Christ? Kind of ashamedly, like, let me, let me tell you guys something. Oh, you don't want to hear it, okay? Never mind, never mind. This is a, he used to be dead, but the tomb's empty over there. That no, obviously we know that. And what we need is a reminder again of those things where our actual hope is, what our actual message is. They spoke. Of that resurrection as bold witnesses. Jesus is alive. This is the hope of humanity. Flesh and bone. In a new way. Beyond death. You can continue to live. Your sins can be forgiven. All the effects of sin removed in your life. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This world is passing and fading away. But Jesus Christ has secured for us. Life and immortality in the gospel, in a new heavens and a new earth with no sin, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, nor death. The curse is gone. We saw it. We touched it. It's not something that's beyond us or incomprehensible. We know exactly what it's like. That's why we're telling you. It's worth any suffering or difficulty you could face here for the glory of it. And the messages you can have it in Jesus Christ. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ was a literal person. Fact. He's one of the most documented human beings in all of human history. Fact. He lived in the area of Galilee. Fact. He traveled around, taught amazing things. Fact. There's one thing people want to debate. Was he who he said he really was? The Son of God? And did he get out of that grave? It's still empty. Nobody's produced a body. And Jesus Christ is still living enough to be saving people that remain witnesses of his resurrection. He forgives from sins. He offers life and immortality freely in the gospel. And I just want to take my place in the line there in history and witness again and preach in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. If you're here today and you don't know what would happen if you died, Jesus Christ offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life if you'll repent and turn from your sins. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible hope and light that you've given us in your death, in your resurrection, we thank you for what you showed us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. And Lord, I do pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you today, that they would surrender and give their life to you. That they could have eternal life and not perish. And for the rest of us, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us boldness to be your witnesses. So we wouldn't be ashamed. Of the gospel. Because it's the power of God to salvation. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to take greater hope. Really have that hope be living in our hearts and in our lives. In what you've shown us in your death and resurrection. So we just put ourselves before you this morning through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Teach us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Mike Foch. If you enjoyed the message, you can access more of Pastor Mike's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.